This morning we're going to begin a new chapter in the book of Ephesians. If you'll join me in the fifth chapter, we're going to give attention to the first two verses. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It's important that we remember here that chapter and verse distinctions were not introduced into the scriptures until just before the Reformation era. So it's tempting always to get to a new chapter and to think that something new is about to begin when in reality the first word of this chapter points us backward and it's there where we find the foundation upon which all of these new exhortations rest. So let's read the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for these exhortations unto holiness, for these commands, for this one in particular, that we walk in love towards you as our Father and toward one another as fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful that Christ has indeed loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice unto you, his Father and ours, which was well-pleasing well in your sight, a sweet-smelling aroma. Father, I pray that you would take this truth of Christ giving himself for sinners and that you would, as we have prayed earlier, gird on your mighty sword and bring it to the heart and the life of every person present. We appeal to your spirit to come and help us. We know that all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One is among us. So, Father, we pray you would come and testify unto yourself. May we be edified and built up in the faith. And may there be new faith among us by your work. We pray and ask it in Christ's name and unto his glory. Amen. We know the general order of Paul's epistles. We talked about it a lot as we've studied this epistle of Ephesians. The first three chapters, obviously, Paul lays down or writes to us, inspired of the Spirit, the doctrines that we need to know to live life. Then in the later three chapters, of which we are in the middle of those, he begins to work out these doctrines and how it should affect us. If the doctrine concerning what Christ has done for you doesn't affect you, if it doesn't change the way you deal with your neighbor, if it doesn't change the way you deal with your fellow church member, with your husband, with your wife, that's where all of this is heading. If you can think of the book of Ephesians as a funnel, and what's being poured into the top are all of these great doctrines of the faith that we must understand what Christ has done for us through the shedding of his blood, justifying us in the sight of God, and then as all of that swirls around and begins to come out the bottom of the funnel, it is so practical in nature that it affects our very 
close and intimate relationships, husbands, wives, children, and so on. What you know about Jesus Christ and what he has done for you should greatly affect the way that you live. There should be no one or no thing that you are unwilling to forgive. That's the point of these verses that we're looking at, especially when we see how they tie directly back in to the 32nd verse. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Nowhere in the scriptures are we told to know things just for the sake of knowing them. Just so that we might have something in our heads and give an opportunity and conversation to let that come out. But everywhere in Scripture, there is the expectation that what you and I know concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to have great effect upon us. And when we get to this latter half of the book of Ephesians, that whole thought and concept comes out in one word. It's really the theme of the ending chapters of the book of Ephesians. And that one word is walk. How you live your life. Notice where we were in the beginning of chapter 4 in verse 1. Do you see that again? I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. There Paul is calling us to walk in a way, to live in such a way that becomes the gospel or matches the grace of the gospel that has been given to us. When we consider this word in and of itself, it means literally to make progress, to advance. Figuratively, it's used here by Paul to show the progress in advancing in grace and holiness that the Christian is to pursue in his life, in her life, as a believer in Jesus Christ. The way Paul uses it here applies to your daily conduct, your habitual daily conduct. This is not Sunday living. This is not Lord's Day life. This is everyday life. If the only time that we apply these doctrines that we know and walk worthy of them are on the Lord's day, then we're nothing more than the hypocrites Jesus refers to in the scriptures. We are play actors. We're playing the part. And there is no heart within us to really live these things out. But this is not the only place that Paul uses this in the fourth chapter. He uses it also in verse 17. He says, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. If we would paraphrase that and summarize it, Paul is saying that as a believer in Jesus Christ, there is to be a marked distinction between you and the rest of the world. The Gentiles here represent pagans. Christians, because of what they know and who they know, should be distinct and live separately from the world around them. So the first use of the word walk in chapter 4 refers to a walk worthy, and really the emphasis there is, if you read the other verses, is to walk in unity with the brethren. That's summarized in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If there's anything in you or in me 
that is not endeavoring to keep the unity of the body, then we are in disobedience to the Scriptures, disobedience to our Lord Himself that calls us in all things to pursue, endeavor to keep unity. I was reading just this week, or last week, uh, through the Proverbs at home. We try to do that from time to time, as I know you all do as well. And these six things the Lord hates... Yes, even seven. What's the last of those? The one who sows discord among the brethren. We are to walk in unity and in love. The second use, in verse 17, we are to walk distinctly, and it's summarized here in the 24th verse, this new man that has been created according to God is to walk in true righteousness and holiness. So we're to walk in unity, We're to walk in holiness, and today we're going to see that we are to walk in love. But it doesn't stop there. In future weeks, we'll get to the 8th verse of chapter 5 and see that we are to walk as children of light. Then we'll get to the 15th verse of chapter 5 and see that we are to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So this word encapsulates everything about the Christian life. Everything about your life and mine is to point back to the grace that we have experienced in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to where we are this morning in the first verse of chapter 5. I'm not sure that there is a higher calling that can be placed upon a Christian than what Paul writes here. Therefore, be imitators of God. The word imitator here literally means to mimic, to copycat, to do those things that God has done immediately in the context on both sides. Let's look backward first. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The first point that I think we could make here is that as we imitate or mimic God, we are going to be known by at least these three characteristics in the 32nd verse of chapter 4. Kindness, compassion, and forgiving. This is the way God has acted toward you in Christ. He's acted toward you and me in kindness, compassion, and with forgiveness. Therefore, the first verse of chapter 5 says, imitate him. This word is not new to Paul. He's used it before, but never in this way. He's never been this bold to say, imitate God. Jesus had been that bold. You might remember in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus is making a summary statement. He says, therefore, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is Jesus' words and his way of saying the exact same thing that Paul says here, imitate God. And so we see that verses 1 and 2 really stand as the capstone of verses 17 through 32 
of the fourth chapter. You have all these great pieces of the puzzle of the Christian life being placed. And if you can picture this archway in your mind. Verse 25 says, Therefore put away lying. There is one stone in the arch. Speak truth with your neighbor. There's another stone. Be angry and do not sin. Another. And as you go throughout all of these things in verses 25 through 32, you're reaching to the point at the top and you're asking the question and we're wondering what is going to hold all of these things together? Well, it's the the capstone of these first two verses. Walk in love puts everything in its place. And it holds everything else together. Without obedience to this simple command of imitating God and walking in love, which really one and the same, then all of these other things in time are going to fail. Especially when we see them as accomplished in our own strength. So more on this word, to imitate. When you were a kid, did you ever do this? Did you ever mimic your brother or your sister or your cousin or perhaps even your parents? Everything that they said, you said. Every move that they made, you make. Sometimes my kids will do that and usually one ends up getting upset with the other. Would you please stop copycatting me? But that's the illustration and the word. So far as we can, we are to imitate God. Obviously, there are things and places and thoughts and such that we cannot imitate him. But so much as he has communicated to us, we are to mimic. We're to copy him. I remember as a young preacher, I attempted to mimic those preachers that I respected. Even down to their mannerisms. Even down to the Bible that they used. The size of the Bible they used. One of the preachers that was greatly effective and used of God in my early life used a very small Bible while he was preaching. And so I thought I had to use a very small Bible. The problem with that was I have these great big hands and I would lose my place and I couldn't turn the pages. Trying to mimic him didn't work. And you can carry that illustration over into every or any area of life really But there's one great difference and distinction in this call to imitate God. If you're trying to mimic or imitate someone else, there's going to be limits to which you can go. And you're going to find at certain points that you just don't have the abilities that they have. You don't have the gifts that they have. You don't have the language that they have. You don't have this that they have. You don't have that. You're going to be frustrated in trying to pattern your life to this degree after them. But when we are imitating God, the great difference is that He Himself, through and by His Spirit, comes and lives in our heart and gives us the ability by the Spirit to imitate Him, especially in our dealings with one another. The word means to copy specific characteristics. And how are these characteristics copied or even learned? If you're trying to mimic someone, if you're trying to imitate, what do you have to do? You have to watch them. You have to listen to what they say. And 
to some degree, you have to experience their life so that you can try to imitate it. The same thing applies to imitating God. We have to listen to Him. We have to watch and see on the pages of Scripture how He has dealt with us, how He has dealt with sinners in general, what He has done for them, and to see how He has expressed to them kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. The only way that we're going to be able to imitate Him is if we are people who pour ourselves into the study of the Scriptures. Far too often, the definition or the concept of God that people have is a figment of their own imagination. I wish or I hope God was like this. I hope or wish that He was like this. The only place that we can find out with any real certainty what God is like is in the Scripture. If you're going to imitate Him, if you're going to mimic Him in His dealings with you as you deal with others, then we're going to have to see on the pages of Scripture, every page, how He has dealt with us and with those around Him. And we have to keep this in mind. We are doing so not so that He will accept us. The call to imitate God here is not so that He will love you and so that He will forgive you. The call to imitate God is based upon the fact that He has already loved you and that He has already forgiven you. And therefore, we are to take on His attributes to some degree and His characteristics. And notice how Paul qualifies this. He doesn't say imitate God in great power, in great strength, in great wisdom. He says imitate Him as dear children. As a dear child. How often does the Scripture impress great spiritual truth on us by giving us the illustration of a child? The humility, childlike faith. And here in this greatest call to imitate God, how are we to do it? We're to do it as a dear child. Does it ever cause you to cons when you consider greatly all of these great truths of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 that all of these have resulted into you being a child of God. That's a phrase that we use. We throw it around. We're children of God. But, but really when you meditate upon it, no one knows you like you. No one knows what's in your heart like you do, save for God himself. And yet to contemplate on that and to think that he has made me, by grace, kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, he has made me one of his own children. He has adopted me into his family. And just like a child, it's one of the most natural things for a child to, to mimic or to imitate their parents. It should be just as natural for us to imitate our Father who is in heaven. And then I suppose Paul, with his great mind and especially inspired of the Spirit, answers a question 
before it even gets asked. The question that we might ask is how? How am I going to imitate God? Notice Paul gives an immediate ready answer when he says, and walk in love. Walk in love. This word love and the concept of it, one of the greatest in all of Scripture, this self-giving, self-sacrificing type of love with which we ourselves have been loved by God and Christ is the love that we are called to, to relate to one another. Let me read you a couple of quotes here. The first by Sinclair Ferguson. Listen carefully to what he says. Loving others is not an optional extra, but a requirement. It does not depend on the whims of our emotions, but on understanding the calling in God's Word. Loving others is deliberate obedience, not an inexplicable urge that overtakes us. You know, we're about to, to move into February. We're about to, to go through this cultural holiday of Valentine's Day, which really confuses this idea of real biblical love. So much of the world's description and so much of our own definition of love, if we aren't careful, devolves into mere sentimentalism and is dictated by our emotions If I feel like loving you today, I'll love you. If I don't, then I'm not going to. That's not what we're called to do when the Scripture says walk in love. Listen to what he says again. It is deliberate obedience. In other words, you must choose to love in this way. There are many times that you are not going to feel like loving your neighbor. There are many times you're not going to feel like loving your fellow church members, those who are in the body of Christ. There are many times you're not going to feel like loving your pastor. There are many times your pastor may not feel like loving you. And if we were to dictate, if our relationships were to be dictated by our feelings, then we're in big trouble. Because I can guarantee you at some point, if I haven't already, I'll offend you. Not intentionally, I'll say something that I shouldn't say or I may do something that I shouldn't do and vice versa. The same with you. Unintentionally, you may offend me or you may offend us all. Then there is a choice that we have to make, every one of us. Am I going to walk in love? Is this going to be the the habitual way that I choose to deal with those around me to deliberately obey this command of Scripture, and it is that, to walk in love, or am I going to deliberately disobey? And here, the second quote, this is John MacArthur, he says, lovelessness is sin. It is willful disobedience to God's command and has a disregard for the greatest of examples. We're going to see the greatest of examples here momentarily, but just again, listen to what he says. We all need to hear this. Lovelessness 
the deliberate disobedience of this command is sin. It is willful disobedience to God's command. And when we find ourselves in this willful disobedience, not just of this command, but of any command, what is the right response of our heart? It's to repent before God, to seek His forgiveness, and then seek to walk in obedience to whatever the command may be. And here, it's the overarching command to love. And then all of this points down to the greatest of examples. Paul says it this way, walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Aren't you thankful that for Christ, love did not devolve into mere sentiment and emotion, and that he didn't do for us what he did based upon his mere feelings? Aren't we thankful, on the other hand, that God in Christ loved us in reality, in action, in obedience? And think of this. When Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, when after Lazarus had died and had been dead for several days, what did he do? The shortest verse in all the Bible. You know your Bible trivia, right? What's the shortest verse in all the Bible? John chapter 11, verse 35. Two words, Jesus wept outside the tomb of Lazarus. And what did those who saw Jesus weeping, what did they think? What did they say? See how he loved him. The tears of Christ at Lazarus' tomb impressed upon those around him that Christ had great love for this man. Now, brothers and sisters, how greatly has he loved you? He didn't just stand outside of your figurative tomb and weep. He went to Calvary's tree for you. He bore your sin in your place. And so we, we stand outside of that and we look into the pages of Scripture and we see all that Christ has done to redeem us unto God and our only response could be, see how He loved them. He endured all of this shame and mockery and scorn, all of that, but even more than that. He became the very object of God's wrath for me and for you. See how He loved you. See how greatly He has loved you. See how selfless He was in His love for you. So selfless that when He was on trial and being questioned, He didn't defend Himself. He didn't try to set things right. But He, like a lamb before its shearer, stood silent. You see how He loved you. Notice this greatest of illustrations. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us. And aren't you thankful when you look on the page of Scripture that there's not a period right there? It would be enough if there was. 
we have the rest of the scriptures to fill in the blanks of our thoughts. But Paul, in the Spirit inspiring him, immediately attaches to this, Christ has loved us and, or by, giving himself for us. This is the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How has he loved me? Notice the words. He has given himself for us. He stood in the place of sinners as condemned of God. One of the scriptures that presses this upon us so greatly is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You probably know it. He, the Father, made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. He gave himself for you. If you're a believer in Christ, let this thought come home fully to rest. He gave himself for you. You have hope. If you have any hope of eternal life, if you have any fruit of the Spirit being born in your life, if you have any understanding of the Scriptures at all, then it's because Christ gave Himself for you. If you understand the truth of the Scripture that you now stand before God as being righteous, declared just, made right before Him, how has that transaction taken place? Because Christ gave Himself for you. There is no salvation apart from Christ giving himself for you as an individual. And think of the greatness of this, not just the example, but think of the greatness of this sacrifice. His atoning death sufficient for every one of his people and all of their sin. You might think and I might think that it would take a lot to redeem me from my sin. And you could think the same thing, but how much more so when we compile the sins of all the children of God and see that Christ gave himself for each of us. And then Paul uses these two great words to even qualify this even further. Not only is there not a period after the words he gave himself for us, it goes on by saying an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So what are we being taught here about Christ giving himself for us? Two words qualify Christ's giving himself, and it is the word an offering and a sacrifice. And then we're told, from God's perspective, how he received this giving of Christ. How did he receive it? Well, as a sweet-smelling aroma. And those of you who know your Bibles, your minds run to places like the entirety of the book of Hebrews. 
and your mind runs backward into the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, all of these sacrifice, the sacrificial system, all of these types and shadows, every one of them in every way pointing to the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, which would be made once and for all. These, these words bring all of that immediately to the table and show us how Christ is the perfect fulfillment of all of the types of the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Covenant sacrificial system. Notice these two words, an offering and a sacrifice. Both are necessary. Both are necessary in this way. An offering is something presented to God. The Old Covenant, there were offerings of, of grain, produce, all types of things were offered to God as a form of worship and to fulfill the commands and the expectation of the Old Covenant. Now here is where the second word becomes necessary. Only did a sacrifice shed blood. You have both. Christ offered himself unto God, but unto the shedding of his blood. Just the offering of himself was insufficient or would have been insufficient because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It's true to say Christ offered himself to God, yes, but to be more precise, we say it like Paul here, he offered himself as a sacrifice to God. Jeffrey Wilson, Jeffrey B. Wilson, says, in this one great transaction, our mediator fulfilled all that was signified by the typical ceremonies prescribed under the law. And isn't that what the entirety of the book of Hebrews is driving and pointing at? That he, after he had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of God. After he offered himself a sacrifice unto God. S.M. Ball is another name that I'll quote here. He says, the point is that this sacrifice pleases God in fulfillment of his commands and satisfies his justice. You understand that only the giving of Christ, the Son of God incarnate, could satisfy the justice of God. So that Paul would write in Romans chapter 3 that God might be both just, the one who requires a just payment, and justifier, the one who pays the just payment. He does both. He requires it, and then he of himself pays the payment. Just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So back to this quote. The point is that the sacrifice pleases God in fulfillment of his commands and satisfy his justice. In Christ alone, divine justice and unfathomable love kissed to fulfill it once and for all, all of the Old Testament sacrificial types, and as a result, pro provide the supreme model for a believer's own grateful, self-sacrificial acts of love. So let's go back to something I've said already. 
lovelessness is sin, willful disobedience of God's command, and most importantly, a disregard for the greatest of examples. What's the greatest of examples? Christ giving himself for you as an offering and a sacrifice to God. But there's even more here at the end of this verse. It says, for a sweet-smelling aroma. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that all of these forms of worship, there was incense that was burned before the altar. And as the incense rose, the thought and the figurative, the type, the symbol of it, was that it was rising as a sweet-smelling aroma into the presence of God, and he was accepting it. Well, now, in the fulfillment of that, we have Christ giving himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God, and then we have the Scripture's own declaration of God's estimation of Christ's sacrifice of the shedding of his blood, the giving of himself, the laying down of his life, he being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what was God's estimation of Christ's offering and sacrifice? It pleased him. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. Can you put these two things together? Offering and sacrifice. Gruesome crucifixion, torture, pain, death, sweet-smelling aroma. God is on the one hand just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. In this realm of the salvation of mankind, redemption, nothing, absolutely nothing pleases God other than the offering and sacrifice of Christ. That's why it is vital, absolutely vital, that you be united to Christ by faith. You can think of faith in many ways many right and true biblical ways, one of the greatest ways we can think about faith is that it is a, a link or a chain that chains us to Christ. We are in union with Him. All that He is in perfection and righteousness and obedience is now who we are. Isn't that the point of the first three chapters of this, of this book? All that He is before God in perfection, righteousness, holiness, now He has conferred these things upon us so that when God sees us, He sees us as being made perfect in His Son, dressed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we too now are a sweet smell to Him. We're no longer an affront to Him. To go back to more Old Testament types and shadows, there are points and periods where the people of God were doing the things on the surface that they were called to do. The greatest example that comes to my mind is in the book of Malachi. 
Go and read the first few chapters of the book of Malachi. What are the priests doing? What are the people doing? They're offering sacrifices. They're doing just what was prescribed for them, to them, under the law, but with one glaring problem. Their heart was not in it, and they were not being obedient in every detail. The phrase that would fit for them is the phrase that we use. They were going through the motions. They were bringing the sick, the lame, the blind sacrifices instead of the spotless and unblemished sacrifice that would really cost them something. In other words, they were bringing that out of their flocks which was going to die anyway and was good for nothing. Couldn't reproduce was going to die, so they just they bring it to God, and the priests allowed it. The priests took it, offered it as a sacrifice. And do you remember what God said through the prophet Malachi to this whole operation of perverted sacrifice? In essence, he says, I'm not receiving it. It's not a sweet-smelling aroma to me. The book of Amos, the same thing is taking place in the fifth chapter, and God says, take away from me the noise of your songs. Their worship had degenerated into mere formality and really at the heart disobedience to his commands. That's the the impetus behind Paul saying, that Christ's offering and sacrifice to God was a sweet-smelling aroma. What Christ did in giving Himself for you and me completely satisfied the justice of God and removed His wrath. When you think of salvation in these terms, you, you, you understand the word propitiation it is a satisfying of the wrath of God and a removal that's expiation taking it out of the way this is what Christ has done for the salvation of sinners through offering himself as a sacrifice to God Only he could please God in this way. Now let's remember, this is not just great gospel doctrine. It is that we're called to believe it, glory in it, love it. But in this context, it's used as an example of how you and I are to love one another. There's no greater example. This is is it. This is what all of history points to. Jesus Christ hanging on Calvary's tree is the greatest expression of love that mankind has ever known or ever will know. And we glory in it in our salvation. And we should. But it's given to us here in the second verse to prove to us the lengths that we should go in loving one another. Now, considering this, 
considering what Christ has done for you, is there anything in life that anyone could ever do to you that you could not forgive? Is there anything in life that anyone could ever do, say, that you could not, even as God in Christ forgave you, forgive them? And you can make this application to everything in the 32nd verse and really preceding that. Is there anyone in life that you can't be kind to? Remember the illustration from last week? Augustine and Ambrose. Augustine as a young man. Vile. Hoodlum. Ambrose the bishop. Was kind to him. And that's what. One of the things. God used in his life to bring him to Christ. Is there anyone that you cannot be kind to? Is there any person that you cannot be compassionate towards? Christ has offered Himself for you in great compassion. We are to walk in love, to imitate God in this. Is there any person that we can't love, be compassionate towards, or forgive? That's really the question, right? The answer is obviously no. But then enter in the flesh. Enter in the flesh that wants to exalt self, preserve self, and self, 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 self. <laughs> Therein lies the problem. But what do you do with it? You've got to run back up to the fourth chapter. Read the 22nd verse. Put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the offering and sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the place of condemned sinners like us. We're thankful that He did what no one else could do and that was to satisfy your righteous requirements to appease your wrath and to remove us from being the objects of it we're thankful that he and that you in him have loved us to this degree now father help us to be obedient to this command to walk in love, and in so doing, imitate you, our Father in heaven. How simple our lives would be if we could strive with everything within us to be obedient to this command, to be self-sacrificially loving those around us in humility, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, help us in this 
as in so many things in the Christian life. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Lord, help us in the struggle against remaining sin, which in every way seems to taint the expectations that you have laid out for us in Scripture. Lord, our, our flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. Help us, we pray. May your Spirit, the Comforter, come alongside of us again and help us in obedience to these things. We pray and ask it so that Jesus Christ might be honored and glorified so that we might not have an empty and vain profession of faith in Him, that we might be profitable servants, that we might be examples one to another, that we might be able to really sincerely fulfill all of these one another expectations in Scripture, but ultimately we pray and ask it so that you would help us to imitate our Father in heaven and walk in love. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.